0: Could you imagine coming to church one day and hearing this type of sermon preached where where someone with great authority and great scriptural understanding says, you've heard what the Bible says. Well, I want to go a step further and say, not only do you do what the Bible says, but you do it even to the point where your mind can't think or, or your heart ever go to that place. And if it does, here's what you need to do. Get rid of the member of your body which commits the offense. That would be, can we say, radical. We could even almost say that would be extremist to some degree. Verse 38. He also says, and this whole chapter is full of these. These are just a few examples. You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we, most of us know what that means. That's a direct punishment for infringements upon your neighbor, right? If if you steal, uh, you have to replace what has been stolen, an equal part, an even really greater part, then Jesus says, but I say unto you, this, this way of thinking is outdated. This is what I submit, that... Ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. You see, when when someone said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, there was a sense of satisfaction because they felt repaid and the other person had to suffer loss. It was not only that they were gaining, but the person who committed the offense was suffering loss. And now our Lord... And what, there's an undertone of revenge there, to be, to be frank. And now our Lord says, no, this way of thinking is not the way that I would say. What I say to you is, if someone takes something from you, go the extra mile to make sure that they have everything they wanted. It's like if they only got away with one pickup truck full, make sure that if they want to come back for a second pickup truck full, you help them load it. This is radical. And our Lord introduces here a way of righteous living. Now chapter 6 transitions to a way of righteous thinking that results in righteous living. Okay, it has never pleased the Lord for righteous actions if righteous intentions were not at at the core of them. So our Lord says, here's what I want you to do, but here is how you get there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Notice with me, first of all tonight, the commandment of alms. The commandment of alms. Now, we at Joshua Baptist Church do not often speak of this term called alms. Uh, Technically, a, a very real definition of it is giving to the needy or the poor. And you may say, well, Brother Andrew, this is New Testament teaching. Why don't we speak on alms more? Well, I'm glad you asked. You see, Proverbs 14, verse 31, and and I'm never going to be a preacher that just excludes portions of the Old Testament because we're in the New Testament. You see, when Proverbs says, He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. I think that's a principle that a Christian ought to live by. And one of the ways that our Lord was teaching this was through the giving of alms. But I want you to take your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. Now we've already, in our stewardship month, heard one message from this. It is likely that you will hear hear another one next week out of this passage of Scripture. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 deal with generous offerings given by Corinth and by the church at Macedonia. And and, and uh, Paul is saying here in both chapters, he's encouraging that the churches would give. Now I, I'm not getting off topic here, but I want you to understand if if alms is giving to the needy, what what Paul covers here in Second Corinthians is the exact same thing. But notice the manner and the method in which it is given. Second Corinthians chapter number eight, verse number one. The Bible says, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit. And remember, uh, last uh, two weeks ago, our pastor started his sermon off by saying this. Have you ever been done to wit? And I'm thinking, what in the world? What is that? And he got us, right? He says, I want you to know, is what Paul's saying here. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty, now we're talking about finances here, abounded under the riches of their liberality. So what Paul says is, they were poor and yet they gave a mighty offering. Now notice verse number three. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power that they were willing of themselves. He's saying they would have given more if they could have. They were giving more than I ever expected them to give. Verse number four, what was this for? Well, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us, notice, the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You see, this was a, an, an offering to support Paul in missions, endeavors. And he was surprised at the amount in which he was able to. And he says, one of the things that I'm going to do with this offering is minister to the saints. Now, verse number one, it tells us that this this offering was given by who? The churches of Macedonia. Now, take your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just One chapter over, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 12, this is all discussing an offering and Paul uses the churches of Macedonia as an example and an encouragement to the church at Corinth because Corinth has made a promise to give another offering. And so Paul says, uh, and you can uh, uh, look through the chapter, but he's saying, I sent people to encourage you uh, so that you would give this offering. Verse number 12, what was the offering for? For the administration of this service not only supplieth, this is what he's saying, the application of this offering or the benefits that will come from this offering, not only supplieth the want of the saints, See, that was one of its main purposes was that those that had wants, those that had needs would be supplied through the giving of this offering. But he goes on to say, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. Your liberal distribution. It's all talking about an offering. But this letter is, is written to who? Well, it's written to the church at Corinth. Amen. Even when Paul talked about the first offering, which was given so that the saints would be ministered to, it was given by who? The church is of Macedonia. You say, Brother Andrew, what are you talking about? Look, I'm saying... That every offering given to help the ministering to the saints and for the saints to supply wants and needs of the poor is always given through the local New Testament church. We may not ever use the term alms because to some, alms, uh, uh, we have this picture of someone maybe sick or ill and we go by and cast money into their hat. That's not a good picture at all. The picture is... The church would be the one who would minister to the needs of the poor. Oh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice all these are New Testament. First Timothy chapter 6 says this. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Notice this that they do good and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute. Oh, these are New Testament references so that people would be willing to distribute to those in need, to the poor in some cases, but through the church. We may not ever call it alms, but when you give to this church, one of the missions of this church is that we would help those in need. But I want to be very clear that there are certain qualifications for which the church can give out money. Let me say that again. If we gave money to every person that asked, our budget would be overdrawn every year. So how do we make those decisions? How, How are we to know who is worthy of receiving help? Well, I want to help you understand some of the things that I look for. Number one, they must be saints. Uh, And I don't mean that they must be advanced in Christianity. What I'm saying is, they must be saved. What do we have to offer a sinner if not the gospel first? If somebody comes in and says, Brother Andrew, I need diapers for my child. Okay, and we're hit with these types of things all the time, on a daily basis, I would say. On a daily basis. People come in all the time asking for help. And some of the stories they have are either crafted very well, or or they watched a lot of Hallmark movies, or it's real life. And it's difficult to discern who is worthy of receiving help. And many times I've had this conversation. Sometimes I feel led of the Lord to help someone. But if they are not what I would first, and I'm not standing in judgment of their salvation, but if if it's someone who I can tell maybe has not had a lot of experience with the Lord and, and things of the Lord, I'll say something like this. Man, I can help you out today, but first of all, I want to ask you a question. Do you know... If you died today, where you'd spend eternity? Maybe I could get you a hotel room for one night, but I can get you a mansion for eternity. And I just don't understand the modern day physical draw of churches and the neglect of spiritual needs. Oh, they'll give water, they'll give food. They'll have food banks, they'll they'll do whatever they can, and yet at no point do they ever mention the Lord Jesus or His saving power. If we are going to help the lost, money will not help them. Jesus Christ will help them. It'll change their life. And so as we give, we must give to saints. And our priority for the lost must be that we would get them Jesus before we ever help them with any type of material need. See, early in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the Bible says the church was so unified in mission and vision and and everything. They all sold lands. And the Bible says that nobody suffered need because they were all sharing together. And the Bible says, and they were added unto the church daily. Now notice who's not suffering need. The church. And those added to the church. Oh, there were still a lot of suffering people. There were still a lot of poor people. You will always have poor people in the world. But the Lord gives us a New Testament pattern of the church surrounding the saints that are in need and reaching the world with their greatest need, which is Jesus Christ. Number one, they must be saints. Number two, they must be stewards. Many times we have saved individuals come to the office, make an appointment with us, and ask for financial assistance. And my first question to them is not, do you know if Jesus Christ is your Savior? It is this, are you tithing off of what you currently have? How foolish would it be for me to give to someone church money so that they could live under a curse? Malachi chapter 3 says that the reason that everything was going wrong in their life was because God had placed a curse on them. And I wonder sometime if churches today don't serve as people's bailout from God's curse. God says, I'm not going to let you meet the rent payment this month because you won't honor me with what I've asked you to honor with me. And they go meet with a preacher and the preacher hands them a check to pay the, pay the rent. And, and the Lord sits upstairs thinking, what in the world's going on, preacher? I don't think the message is being conveyed. If you cannot trust God with 10%, boy, I do not want to be there on examination day when the Lord asks you how much faith you have to get into heaven. If you can't trust Him with carnal things like money, how are you going to trust Him with your eternal salvation? And we must look for people who are stewards of money. Now, don't mistake. Good stewards can run into difficulties. Good stewards will not always have an easy path. One of the reasons that the New Testament church appointed deacons because their widows had needs. Amen. And some of the most faithful people in this entire church over the years have been people who are now widows sitting in this church. And you're telling me if they come to me with a need, I'm not going to help them out? Look, they got to be stewards. And just because you're stewarding doesn't mean you might not, might not come up short sometimes. Amen. And so we look for saved people. We look for stewards. We look for people who, when able, are searching for work. Now, I believe I can prove this to you biblically, but let's just be real for a second. If you come and ask this church for money and you have no plan on how to get money, what are you doing? It's been said that a a wish without a plan or or a goal without a plan is just a wish. And I I promise you, I've sat across from people and they look at me and say, Brother Andrew, we really need help. And I say, well, what are you doing? Are you trying to find a job? Well, you know, I haven't really been out this week. Well, you sure found enough time to come up to the church and make an appointment and sit across my desk and ask me for help. If, If you used half the amount of time poor-mouthing, as you did applying for jobs, who knows what God could do for you. And the Bible in the New Testament says in 2nd Secullonians, uh, that's a woo, That's a humdinger of a book, I tell you. Yeah. I loved it this morning my dad said, not thumb-sucker, some-thucker. Woo! We got close there. 2. I did it again! That's what I get for mentioning it to you today at lunch. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3, verse 10, the Bible says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you notice that if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's not Old Testament law, y'all. That's 2 Thessalonians. amen. Amen. And I'm not trying to be cruel. I'm trying to say there are a lot of really good people that have given of their their treasure. They have trusted God that He would do something great with the money that they put into this church. And it is upon us as the preachers and the pastors of this church to at least have some type of basis for people who are in need if you're in need and it's your fault, man, me bailing you out isn't going to help at all. You're going to be back next week asking for help. Oh, I'll do whatever I can. Many times people come up and say, Brother Andrew, Brother, brother, uh, bro, uh, brother Gene, I almost called him Brother Preacher. Brother Gene, uh, we can't find work anywhere. And I promise you this has happened more than, more than a dozen times Preacher picks up the phone, calls somebody. Later that week, they have a job as a result of that phone call. Look, look, we're here to help, but we're not here to enable. You must be saved. You must be steward. You must be searching if able. And some people are not able. And you must be spiritual being spiritual is not the same as being saved. I know a lot of saved people that put lost people's uh, actions, or I know a lot of saved people who, when you look at lost people, you wonder why they couldn't live like them. I know lost people that put Christians to shame in their morality, their integrity, I specifically recall a family many, many, many years ago, most of you wouldn't even know them, who we helped out time and time again, over and over and over again. And honestly, this would have been in perpetuity. I really believe this. We would have continued to help them forever and ever and ever until it became public knowledge that one of the people in the marriage was drinking and, and cheating on their spouse. What, is we, what are we as a church staff and church leadership supposed to do? Are we just supposed to keep funneling money and, and, and helping them struggle and sin? No, I don't believe we are at all. The Bible tells us that we are not to join hand in hand with, with wicked people. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5, uh, chapter six, uh, verse 6 and 7, let no man deceive you with vain words. That's very important. A lot of people say, no, I I'm not guilty of that. And evidence calls them on the carpet and says, no, you are. Let no man deceive you with vain words because of these things. Cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. There comes a time when people who may have previously been helped with by the church no longer live a life that the church can can really put their stamp of approval on. And I feel, and you tell me if I'm wrong, I feel that it is in your best interest that if you give to this church, it's not going to people to buy alcohol. It's not going to people that, that are just trying to go spend their money or gamble it away, but it's going to good people. Not perfect people, but people that love God and are trying to serve Him. It's going to someone's car who cannot otherwise get it fixed. It's going to someone in our Spanish church who literally does not have one air conditioner in their home. Those are the types of families that I look for. And those are the needy. And those are the poor. And God uses our church to take care of them. We may not use the term alms often, but this church takes care of the saints here that are in need. Not only does it take care of them here, but I remember last year when a church lost everything they had in a flood, our church sent one of the larger checks that they received just because we loved them. And if I've ever seen a biblical pattern for ministry, it's when the church at Macedonia sends church to Corinth or vice versa. It's when independent churches understand that sometimes other churches fall on hard times and we help them through those times. That is helping the needy. So they must be saints, they must be stewards, they must be searching, they must be spiritual. The commandment of alms. Secondly, I want you to notice this. The challenge of our attitude. Back in Matthew chapter 5... Matthew chapter five or six. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter six. Really, the portion of scripture is not geared toward alms per se or the giving of alms. It's geared towards your attitudes when you give. And it says in verse number one, "Take heed that you do not give your alms before men to be seen of them; otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father." which is in heaven. As people, oh, we like to be bragged about. Yeah, yeah. We like to be publicly acknowledged for the things that we do. And it, and it, it I don't know, it, it kind of helps our pride a little bit. It, it rubs our ego. I'll never forget this last week as we sat in that board meeting there at school. And I'll tell you, it was boring. It really was. That wasn't funny. I'm sorry. Um, We sat in the meeting there and there's three ladies across the table and me and my mom and preacher in there and brother Brian Archer's in there. And uh, they said, one of the things that has impressed us the most about this school and the parents and what they've told us, everybody loves Brian. And I said, not this guy. And uh, they, they were taken back. I, I, it almost seemed as if they had never seen a more loved uh, uh, authority figure in a school. And I I started bragging on him a little bit. I said, you know, when, when the school uh, came in need of this position, honestly, it was like, who can we find to just put in there? It's like, like when you're in a boat and it's sinking, you just find something to plug up the hole. That's what Brian was. Just stop the capsizing. And I, I, I don't know, it's almost like God has called him to this. I mean, he is great and maybe some of you disagree and y'all can get right with God later. But I'm telling you right now, Brian's done a phenomenal job at that school. And all you got to do is go walk the halls and ask the students, and they'll all say, sure, no, no authority figure is perfect, but I'll tell you what, he's a good one. And I started to brag on him a little bit, and Brian kind of said, oh boy, this is making me very uncomfortable. <laughs> and, just, and I understand what he meant, but when somebody acknowledges you sometimes, it feels really good that your work and your labor is not going unseen. And there's a temptation to make that your primary focus. And the Lord here, in three different points in Matthew chapter 6, says that we are to be aware, uh, and not like this term is used, verse number 2, the hypocrites. Verse number 2, the Bible says, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Notice verse number 5 of Matthew 6, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. Verse number 16, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. Our Lord, whoever He's terming as these hypocrites, and I believe we all know, but He wasn't using that term here. He referred to the Pharisees and the scribes earlier in Matthew chapter 5. But he does not directly label them as the hypocrites in this passage. But he says, don't be like the hypocrites. That's a pretty strong word. If I called you a hypocrite, that would be just about the worst type of insult that you could say to someone. You're a hypocrite. and Our Lord says, "We we ought not be like the hypocrites. And in this matter of giving... He says that we're not to be like someone who sounds a trumpet. What many people think happened back in these days is when the Pharisees and when the scribes were willing to give to the poor, they would go to a corner of either the synagogue or find a deserted street. They would take an instrument like a trumpet and in this Empty area. Sound off this instrument so as to call the poor and needy. And and maybe it started out at first nobly. Maybe there were no ill intentions to begin with. But after a while, the trumpet call was not meant for the poor. It became a call for everyone to look and see what I was doing. They did this and the poor would approach and everybody would look to see how much they would give or what they were giving. And the Lord says, we can't be like that. You know what the word hypocrite means here? An actor. It speaks of people who play a role. When I was in school, at college, we tried out for these dramas. I wish I could tell you it was because I loved acting. No, it was because I got to break curfew and date Amy about two two hours later than when I normally would. So I tried out for every play. Now, most of the time, it kind of backfired because very rarely did me and Amy get casted together in the same play. And I never felt like I was a great actor, but I one time kind of approached Dr. Getch, the guy who runs our, uh, our drama productions, and I said, Dr. Getch, when are you going to write a lead role for a red-headed, freckled, pasty kid? <laughs> because every time he casted somebody, it was dark hair and good-looking. And, and I'm like, Dr. Getch, when are you going to put me in that type of role? I'll never forget. It wasn't too much longer than that. I remember, or too much later, I remember trying out for a play, and we don't really know what all the plays are for. We only, you know, hear about two sentences worth of it. And the first name called on callbacks was Andrew Wolfenbarger. And I had been in these plays, and I knew that the people with the most prominent roles were called first. The guy that said the first line of the play, the focus was first guy and I'm thinking he finally wrote like an orphan Annie but a male part this is great so excited we show up I open the script and my name is right next to Benjamin Franklin sure enough I open the play with the very first line with the lights drawn up with a bald head and flowing gray hair as Benjamin Franklin. I was acting. That's what the Bible says these Pharisees were, these hypocrites. When they were giving, they were only doing it so that they could be seen. There was no genuine concern or compassion for those that they were giving to. It was simply so that they could receive Glory and honor. The Lord says, don't be like them. Don't do your your good deeds to be seen of men. Proverbs 27 gives us some very wise advice. It says, let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. But I'll tell you this, it's a challenge to fight this attitude. It's a challenge to not let people know when we do good things. Even our spouse sometimes. It's a challenge. But the Bible tells us the moment you start to advertise it with the intent that you might receive some type of credit, you know what you lose? You lose the credit that God would give you. The challenge of our attitude. Thirdly, and we have to hurry because y'all are very anxious to get home and not watch the Cowboys... The charge of anonymity. The charge of anonymity. Now God says, Jesus says in this passage, Don't publicize. Don't do your good deeds. Give your alms to be seen of men. Verse number 3 is the way, the remedy to protect us from uh, collecting pride. Verse number 3 But when thou doest alms, here's your remedy. Let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. The remedy for combating our prideful nature is this. Be so secretive about it that not even on the other side of your body could it know I've heard some people say, well, this is talking like your best friend. No, I really believe that the Lord Jesus was saying this to give you an overemphasized example. Be so secretive when you give that your right hand does not know what your left hand is doing. Be so secretive. Why do we have to do that? Well, because if we don't practice that, we will slip into looking for credit. The moment we advertise it, and I had to be very careful crafting this sermon, even that illustrations could not be perceived to bring glory to myself. You know why? Because the moment I start to receive glory for something, I believe that's the moment you lose it. We have to be selective. We have to be, frankly, very secretive. We don't need to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Well, I like this. If most people were half as good of Christians as what they claim to be, our churches would be full of John the Baptist and the Apostle Pauls. You ever heard somebody talk up a big game? I remember in high school getting this football player from Cleburne High School who was just going to come and Man, he was going to blow the top off our football team. We're going to go to state because now we have this four-star football player. Showed up to practice the first day. That was the only day he ever tried. I hit him one time and it was like he quit. And I'm thinking, you were supposed to be the guy you bragged on yourself. Man, if some people were half as good as what they thought they were, we'd be doing all right. That's why we just need to let our talk Take a back seat to our walk. That's why we just need to silently serve so that people don't get soured on the way that we talk about ourselves. Be secretive. Keep it hidden. Secondly, keep your honor. Not your honor, but the honor to to be bestowed upon you. Verse number four is clear, and I believe this with all my heart. The reason we are to be secretive, the reason that we are to keep what we give hidden, first of all, is to make sure that our pride is not the one that's receiving our glory, but that we give in humility. But verse number four says, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. My college and many other colleges, Christian colleges around the nation, they oftentimes put building names because of large donors. Somebody, for instance, gave, I believe, six million dollars to the building of one of our main central buildings there at the school that I attended. And it was an awesome building, and And uh, so the church only had to raise, or the college only had to raise, about 30% of what it normally would have for this amazing building. And they named the building after him. Now, many Christians have a real problem with this. They say, "What what are you labeling buildings after people? Don't you know that that's against the Bible? No, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that you can't be honored here. But the Bible says this. When you're honored here, you won't be there. Well, I have no problem putting someone's name on a building. Just know that this is the honor you will receive. I hope it's good enough for you that your name would be labeled across the building. I, I hope that that is what your end goal was. Because when you get to heaven, Jesus isn't going to look at you and say, Boy, am I so glad you gave that gift. Not long ago, my my college sent me a uh, request to buy some library books. And boy, I tell you, I got excited. I thought, boy, all the times I spent in the library, I'm really going to help a student here. (laughs) They sent me a request to buy some library books. And I love my school. I appreciate what it did for me. I believe it, in large part, had a, a large hand in helping me transition from a a boy to understanding what it is to be a man. I'm thankful that they taught me the Word of God. I'm thankful for relationships that I have like John. If I hadn't gone to my college, uh, Amy, number one, would be on that list. (laughs) But I met John in college, uh, and John Scahill, he's on staff at the school, and I never thought we'd be working together, but we actually lived together for a year, and and I tell you what, if, if he lived with me and he came, you know he loves the Lord. Because this really is a ministry. I tell you. I'm thankful for the relationships I have. I'm thankful for what it did for me. And they sent me that request the other day to buy some books. And so I, I felt like I could help the school. And they included in the letter, and they said, if you would like your name in the front of the book. Every person that buys a book... We will put the name, your name in the front of the book. And I wrote him and said, I'll give money, but please do not put my name in a book. First of all, because somebody might think I like checked it out of the library and actually read it. And everybody knows that's not true. But I said, if I'm going to give to something, I want to make sure that I'm sending that money that way. I'm sending that honor that way. And I'm not a receiving glory here. I did not do that so that one kid one day could open that book and say, Boy, I'm so thankful for Andrew Wolfenberger." Because the moment that happens, I would lose any type of glory in heaven. So, uh, I think we have to be careful in the way in which we give our offerings. That it would be done in great humility Understanding that He is the possessor and giver of all things, and we only give it back to Him in trust and recognition of who He is and what He's done for us. And I like the thought that one day our God is going to make everything public that happens in private. How many times I've heard preachers use that as a threat? One day God's going to make everything known that you've done in private. For some, that's a blessing. For some of you who have served in dark corners of this church and just plugged away and worked hard and been faithful all these years, when God makes known all the things that you've done without preacher knowing or without anybody knowing, you're going to receive great honor. Well, it's not always the person that gets recognition here. It's the person who yet has seen the glory they will receive. Here's my challenge to you tonight, and we're done. Live your life in such a way that when everything is made known, you'll be happy it was.